This episode's guest is Nick Award. Almost 35 years on from starting as a coach, Nick is active in helping people achieve their goals and improve their lifestyle, whether for the outdoors, on the sports field, or the Olympic podium. As the Altus Programs Director, Nick builds education and training resources that shares experiences and processes. Altus is an elite training environment for athletes and a global leader in the provision of education for sports performance. The complexity of managing both the performance and health of athletes is at the heart of the Altus approach. On this episode, Nick and I discuss Nick's background. I asked Nick if he was involved in the London 2012 Olympic Games. I asked Nick what lessons he has learned from all of his coaching experiences. I asked Nick what is the current mission and vision for Altus going forward. I asked Nick about how coaches can develop their information filter. I asked Nick how he learns. Nick gives us his top and current reading recommendations. I asked Nick what life lessons he has learned over his life and career so far. And finally, I asked Nick if he could invite five people to dinner, dead or alive, who would he invite and why. Guys, as always, this was another fantastic conversation. I really enjoyed this interview with Nick and I hope you really enjoy it too. Okay, Nick, we are rocking and we're rolling. Thanks so much for making time. Give us your background because I know it's very extensive and I want to, and I, I like extensive background, so feel free. Thanks for having me, Robbie. Uh, I think I've got the world record on Pacey Performance Podcast, my longest intro, so I'm not sure my intention right now is to beat that record. Um, you know, I guess, well, so right now um, I'm based in South Lake Tahoe in California. I, I work for Altis as uh, the program's uh, director, um, kind of a new role over the last 12 months with you know, what's happened uh, to the industry and, uh, you know, what's happened to a lot of our, you know, outward facing coaching contracts. Um, you know, the role I had here was we um, had a consultancy role with Barton Health, which is a uh, medical system up here in the mountains, you know, kind of rural hospital community dealing a lot with, um, you know, injuries, knee injuries, ACL injuries uh, from, you know, winter sports enthusiasts. And also, um, you know, work a lot with skiers and Olympic athletes from U.S. Ski and Snowboard, too. So, um, you know, the big, the big part of the role really was to how do we kind of translate, transfer uh, Altis philosophy, practice, ways of working to really blend uh, with this continuum of, of care in a, in a health-based um, model. And, um, you know, after four years... Um, uh, the program got cut because of COVID. This, the brand new facility that they'd built, which once I got here was still two years in the making, um, was kind of commandeered for what they thought was going to be more hospital beds and things like that as well. And there's obviously financial issues involved in it, you know. But we, you know, from when I first got here after about a year starting in a very small kind of warehouse little building, you know, really crap little space to be honest. You know, but with a couple of good staff and, and principals and practice, we ended up with like about 135 people training with us um, who, you know, the town had CrossFit and I got on great with those guys. They had a, other facilities in town. But this was that blend of the health and performance that Altus is so well known for. It wasn't just about spewing your guts out, you know, getting as many reps in as you can. You know, it was about the warm up. It was about awareness of your body. You know, the people didn't necessarily think they needed to go to physical therapy to get something looked at. You know, it was like, well, actually, probably this is just that, 
you just got a bit of a stiff joint. Let's work on those things and get you moving well in your training. Um, so people really appreciated that. But of course, we were still able to integrate with the physical therapists. And, um, you know, a couple of them had been down to Altis for what was then the, the in-person ACPs and um, really embraced kind of the philosophy as well. So, you know, it was, it was not like we were excluding physical therapy. It's very much, hey, I think you should go and see this person. Or they would actually just hang out in our sessions at times, uh, which is kind of cool as well. And recognize that this is a this is a you know an American insurance pay medical based system. You know there were challenges in that and bringing in a retail model to work alongside that. Uh, some people felt it should just be at the end of the model. Once people have done all their insurance pay physical therapy, then go and see these guys. We'll we'll kind of make you ready for those guys, which frustrates the hell out of me that physical therapy thinks they've got to make people ready for us. You know, when, you know, there's only a part of their body that the physical therapist is looking after. There's this other whole part of their body as well. The well body, if you want to call it that, that also needs looking after. And Dr. Terry Orr here was great at that saying, look, some of these people are used to getting after it, training six days a week. All of a sudden they've got an injury. They're in physical therapy and they're being active maybe once or twice a week. You know, um, that's not good for them mentally either. You know, so how can we build something in parallel alongside this? And, you know, that's kind of what we did. And, um, you know, from 130 odd clients in, in the small little space that we had to by the time the program was cut, we had around 400, 450 uh, clients, you know, and, and certainly 300 of those were solid, regular clients. And, you know, we started to work more with local teams and and that sort of thing as well. So, you know, I think it was a real success in what we did. Um, you know, we we're bringing in over half a million dollars of revenue, which you know, wasn't there before uh, at the same time. Um, so that was really useful. And I learned a crap load of stuff, you know, um, being, being my previous sports in like rugby and soccer, I'd never all really been involved right from the very start of something like an ACL or an ankle, you know, again, those return to sport, Kind of systems we would sort of come in a little bit later but here it's great even being involved before the operation you know keeping people moving active and then really being involved from day one understanding the surgeries going into surgery and watching acl surgery um working along the great therapists that they had here to really understand you know how they would go through those processes in that more of a clinical sense and then bringing that kind of you know, the, the altest kind of performance therapy view into it. And, you know, really responsive uh, group of staff here, things like dribbles and hurdle drills and things, you know, regularly incorporate. And in fact, the, the main group of physical therapists that I work with here, you know, Jason, Ian, Angie and Justin, uh, actually quit Barton themselves over the summer and set up their own clinic in town called PT Revolution and very much modeled on, on the program that we put in place. So, that was the project here. And one of the spin-offs from that is that I got to really know people at US Ski and Snowboard really well. Troy Taylor, actually the high performance uh, director is a, is a Brit working for them. Uh, Callum Butterfield, you know, I work really closely with, uh, as well as their kind of high performance manager for all their academy centers. Chris Miller now works for them as an S&C coach who, like yourself, was a was a, an ex-Altis uh, intern for a while. And, you know, that's... Uh, set him on his path there as well. And, you know, Kay Jones that worked with me here for a couple of years, uh, uh, went on to now be a, a personal coach for an NBA player at Sacramento Kings. Um, 
Jamie, who interned with us here, has gone on to be the head S&C coach at uh, the Ski Academy, just north of here as well. And Justin, who was with us is, from his experience and his love of therapy, has gone on to Cairo School. So, you know, I think, you know, we kind of mimicked a little bit here what, what was sort of happening at Phoenix from the educational experiences as well. And I thought it was really important to um, make education a real central pillar of not just the services we delivered out to the community, but also by integrating and engaging with the staff here as well. So that was kind of then, and, and this is now. Um, over the last 12 months, you know, my role at Altis has had to pivot quite, quite massively uh, more into the, you know, the delivery of the education side. And um, from my background, that, that isn't new to me. I was a university lecturer at University of Northumbria um, I actually did my undergrad degree at Newcastle Poly, which then became University of Northumbria. Um, and, you know, graduated from there in about 92, 93. Um, went on to, at that time I worked in a local fitness gym, body zone. I was kind of keen to set up training classes for staff and, uh, and all those kind of things. Guy, friend of mine, Ian Miller, um, you know, got me into circuit training and things like that as well. Bit, a little bit older than me at the time, and that was a lot of fun too. And so that was a really good grounding in Newcastle um, with Phil Hayes, John Emmett. And you know, back then you had a lot of contact time with your educationalists, and that was really great to be able to kind of feed into that. And you know, one thing Phil did with us back then was that he would take us to the medical library a lot at Newcastle University. So you know, when there wasn't so much internet, YouTube, so much kind of just information out there that let's say was, was opinion and belief. Um, again, nothing against opinion that has, you know, a solid kind of background to it. But a lot of stuff out there right now, I think is there's a difference between methodology and ideologies. I feel big difference. So going to that Newcastle library, you know, you were reading journal of physiology, applied physiology. You were, you were really getting into the stuff, you know, to sort of build that kind of real, background of the biochemistry or the biomechanics or the bioenergetic side of stuff. So I, I thought that was good uh, background to sort of understand things at that depth as well. And then, you know, um, I, post that, I got a job to work there for a while. John Emmett went off to Middlesbrough Football Club. And it's kind of in those days where um, most sports science support, if you want to call it, with clubs was often done free. Um, you know, it was friends of a friend and... Um, you know, it was just turning where clubs realised they needed to kind of invest in that a little bit more. So John went off there for a sabbatical and I was able to take over his role as the physiology and biomechanics kind of lecturer for a while too. So that was a lot of fun doing that, um, you know. Um, and of course, you know, intervening times, I went to Canada to do my master's degree at the University of Calgary. And that's where I met Stu McMillan, you know, this... Uh, guy that used to hang out in the fitness centre and, um, you know, try and train train athletes. And uh, we both started working in the fitness centre there, hung out a lot, got to know each other well and kind of figured that we, we were quite aligned in our sort of thinking as, as much as we knew back then when we were 25, 26 years of age. How, sorry to interject. How did you go from, like, England to decide to go to Canada to do a Masters? Um... You know, I was looking around master's degrees in England at the time. And um, other than Loughborough, I guess I kind of felt that whether I was right or wrong, there wasn't really enough applied experience in the UK at the time, I, I thought. A lot of really good sports science, but there wasn't a lot 
it was the very early days of sports science really getting into sport. And, you know, I, I was kind of part of the interdisciplinary group of bases at the time, and that's now gone, you know, but I think that's something which you try and recapture that the interdisciplinary kind of delivery model is, is really what interested me, you know, generalist, you know, jack of all trades, master of none. And so I was looking around, but I was lucky on my undergraduate placement at Northumbria. I went to Canada. I went to a place called the University of Regina in Saskatchewan. And, uh, you know, in the middle of nowhere, because there was a lady called Phyllis Bent who um, finished her degree in England, but she was Canadian. So they had this connection. Um, so I went out there, first of all, and um, worked at a place called the Dr. Paul Schwann Center. And I was able then to, you know, work with um, disability groups, cardiac rehab. They have this whole big Cybex setup and performance lab. They have the Saskatchewan Rough Riders there. I also coached soccer when I was there, football, and I played rugby when I was there as well. But in that time, uh, I was with the volleyball team and the athletic therapist there said, why don't you come along? Because they were, she was training members of the national team and we ended up going to Calgary. And I arrived in Calgary, never really having seen kind of like an American style college firsthand, if you like, and not saying University of Calgary is anything like a, an American college, but you know, you look up and you see this stadium and you see this building and all these facilities and all this sport going on. I'm like, yeah, this is where I want to go. You know, I wanted to have a master's degree. And I started looking around and, you know, there was, um, I mean, you know, I could have gone out to uh, Hamilton. Um, I could have gone to BC, could have gone to Calgary. And, and if I was probably more into my research and if I was really looking at this as an academic opportunity, I probably should have gone out to Hamilton. Um, but I wanted my master's degree to be more of, more of an experience than just the academic side of it. I like the look of Calgary. There was skiing nearby. Um, so you know, gratefully I was accepted there. I was also awarded a teaching assistantship, which was very helpful. And uh, yeah, I decided to go out to Calgary. Okay, so you met up with Stu. That's where I interjected. So from, from your master's then in Calgary, what, what, uh, what was next? So, yeah, I spent a couple of years um, just kind of, you know, messing about, really. I mean, this is where I first heard of the name Dan Path. Uh, you know, 95, Stuart sort of started to get to know Dan, and it was intriguing me, and I saw Stuart put his hands on athletes and, you know, do flexibility work, um, you know, as opposed to use any kind of medical terms that would cause scope practice issues and kind of got into the idea of, you know, what are you trying to do and the focus on getting them moving well and, watching the warm-up and looking for any aberrations that you, know, you don't normally see and kind of getting into it that way. You know, I'm someone that's come from, it's about the energy systems. You know, it's ATP, PC, it's anaerobic. It's, it's, you know, everything's kind of in these very classified boxes. And I remember on my undergrad getting quite frustrated that I wanted remote control because um, it was just like, hey, this, is, this seems kind of cool, kind of an area we're not looking at. Everything was so physiology, energy systems based. But motor control at that time was a realm of psychology. You know, it was just kind of in this box over here. So that kind of triggered, you know, my, my interest in what Stuart was doing in, in trying to influence movement, um, both with interventions uh, and, with, and with cueing as well. So that kind of sparked off, you know, a relationship. We started our first business together there. We were training track athletes, um, kind of renegade, kind of duo you know, um, having no money at the time to rent facilities, we'd jump over the fence at night to get into the track with our athletes and 
things like that as well. Um, we used to sell, pre, uh, we used to make up a big cook up on a Sunday and box it up so we could sell it to our athletes. They, they were eating well and it made us a little bit of money. I even remember doing haircuts for $2, um, you know, to shave the he shave heads to make some money at the time as well on, on top of everything else we were trying to do. And, um, you know, it kind of, you know, Stu and I then started doing a lot of work with the soccer clubs in the town. And to be honest, I could have stayed. I, I went back to England and started uh, for a little while, you know, um, as sometimes is always in this case, there's always like a, a relationship involved somewhere and, you know, things like that. And um, that had to kind of get, get ended. And I started working at Newcastle College, doing some lecturing work there. I also, I also started to do some part-time work for Newcastle Poly or New Northumbria University, as it was. When you know, I started playing rugby for North Shields again and hanging out with the lads and having some crack and, you know, kind of in a bit of a weird place. Um, you know, my master's had come to an end. And, um, you know, I actually gave up a really good job at the Massage Therapy College uh, over there. Um, I wasn't actually working legally working there, but it was a really good job and quite well paid. And I came back to England and just kind of, kind of got stuck here really in a way um, and without going back over there to kind of continue on what, what I kind of learned. And then, um, you know, through those intervening months, it was clear I was going to be able to get a job at Newcastle, Northumbria University. It looked like a really good job to be a lecturer for them. Uh, met my future wife at the time uh, in that period as well. And then, and then kind of stayed in England from that, from that period onwards for uh, the next couple of years until I got the role at the University of Durham. Um, as assistant director of sport. Do, do you know Paul Winsper? Have you heard of Paul Winsper? I actually haven't. So Paul Winsper, Dean Riddle, um, I think David Redding might have been involved in that group a little bit at the time, were, were kind of a group of people that kind of seemed to get together and, and were kind of figuring this whole kind of applied sort of system out. And Paul was based up in the Northeast and he was a student on the Northumbria Pro. And again, an older, older, more mature student. And uh, through Phil Hayes, we kind of connected and started talking and, um, you know, really connected well on the youth development models and things like that. Well, happened that Paul um, became the sort of head physiologist, uh, you know, fitness trainer, whatever we were called back then for Newcastle United. But in the meantime, he'd been working with a local th physical therapist called Andrew Walton, sort of building up a few contracts with Durham County Cricket Club, Northumberland Rugby and Newcastle United. And there's a guy in England at the time called Eddie Baranowski, I think it was American or Canadian who had a number of part-time gigs with a number of soccer teams, you know, uh, it's the early days again, you know, a couple of days here, a couple of days there. He had people kind of working for him and he turned down the full-time job at Newcastle. So Paul jumped on that. So therefore the academy position was open. So Paul had all these kind of different contracts and didn't kind of know what to do with them. So with Andrew Walton and, and Peter Warburton at the University of Durham, they said, well, Let's, let's have a position that we can kind of bring all these in-house and create this business for the University of Durham. And that's what happened. And I, I got that job. Uh, there were some interesting people I was up against, actually, for that role. Uh, I, won't, I won't mention names, but I think I got it because of my experience of that kind of North American system. Uh, kind, of, kind of got it a bit more, you might say. And, um, you know, we just built up a, an incredible program at the University of Durham over four and a half years, you know. Um, Know, from you know having virtually no formal kind of support structures in place to you know training 370 athletes three or four nights a week over three or four hour blocks you know with two or three other staff as we grew that business um, you know into something that that was that was just an amazing opportunity for me to play and again to grow other staff you know Adrian Lamb worked there and he went on to do a lot of other stuff Paul Winsper 
um, after all his time at Newcastle, went to work for Nike Spark, uh, Toronto FC, and he now he's working with Under Armour out in, uh, in Washington State over here. Don't know where Lammy is in the world, but he went on to do some really cool things with different teams with Sam Allardyce for quite a long while as well. So University of Durham was a, you know, that mix of collegiate-based athletes changing the culture there, um, going from a small little 10 by 10 room to actually then developing a whole floor of facilities for S&C, a track outside. Stu came over a number of times to visit and do stuff with me, you know, with the England Netball Regional Squads. We had Hartlepool United, first team in academy, Newcastle Academy, Durham County Cricket Club, first team in academy, Colin Sanctuary, um, fabulous guy from York who was really into his rugby league and cricket came up and took over that contract. He's now based out in Australia. Jeremy Hickmans came over for an internship for a little bit. And Jeremy Hickmans is a you know quite an influential dude now out with, with Wayne Bennett in rugby league out in Australia. Um, so um, you know, I look back and just see all these amazing people that I, I was able to brush shoulders with for a while and work alongside. And I think sometimes when you look back, you take some of those experiences for granted. Um, you know, so from University of Durham, I, um, I started working with EIS. Um, that was kind of early establishment days and, um, you know, did a bit of work for them. Had the opportunity for the, to take the lead role there. But uh, the, the head, the director at the time, didn't want me to apply for it. because He said, if you apply for it, it still only leaves me with one S&C coach. So a guy called Jeremy uh, Hooper, I think his name was. He was um, became the... Um, president of UKSCA for a while. I can't remember if it was Super or not. I know it was Jeremy something. And he came up there and I did some part-time. So I didn't kind of know where it was going though, Robbie, you know? It's kind of three-month contract, three-month contract. You know, the stuff was going well at the university. And I just kind of felt this itch that I didn't really know what I was. You know, I was running a business. I was developing staff. I don't think externally people kind of, I didn't really know what to identify myself as. Now, again, I was this interdisciplinary guy, right? But I wasn't a GPS guy. I wasn't the strength guy. I wasn't the this guy. I wasn't that guy. And I kind of felt this pressure that I had to be identified as something. Um, or Because or, I worked in so many sports as well. So Chris Turner, who was the manager of Hartlepool United at the time, um, Sheffield Wednesday had got regu- relegated. He was an ex-player of Sheffield Wednesday. Him and Colin West uh, went to Sheffield Wednesday. And then, you know, I got the phone call, obviously. You know, how do you fancy it? And I thought, well, there you go. I can be a football specialist. That's, that's what I can go and do, you know, and really make a difference in football. Um, and uh, so I took the jump, took the leap of faith. And um, 18 months later, we were all fired. And uh, that's when, when the career roller coaster really started to happen. So I know you were involved in the Winter Olympics in 2010. So maybe just touch on that a little bit. And then a question that's been on my mind since I listened to your interviews on Pacey Performance and with um, with Sean on uh, Upside Strength. Um, were you involved with London 2012? No, not to a massive extent. I, I mean, with, with the Talented Athlete Scholarship Scheme, uh, that I was employed by as a national league for S&C, you know, I was more supporting other coaches that had athletes going there. Um, so no, I actually ended up missing out on three Olympic games. Um, where where were you? Where, where were you at that time, Nick? Where were you during? Because again, to 2010, 2010, you were in Canada, were you? For the no, I was back in England then. No, I left. I left Canada in two thousand and eight. 
So okay. the bobsleigh, yeah, the bobsleigh job um, got interesting. Um, and then I was um, up for both the EIS national lead and TAS national lead. Um, for the EIS, because I, I didn't have the PhD, I don't think I was good enough. Um, TAS, again, my organization management skills got me in with that role. So now I was back in England and, you know, the, the bobsleigh setup and bobsleigh skeleton setup that went to uh, the 2010 games, yeah, I missed out because I, I, I left um, after some disagreements with their hierarchy. Um, you know, Stu remained. Um, we can talk about the great escape at some point. Uh, felt like it. And then, um, no, I went back and I was national lead for TAS for three and a bit years. So over 2010, you know, I had, I had the watching the Canadian team do really, really well in bobsleigh and skeleton with the systems that I that I'd put in place as the performance director there. And 2012, I had the joy of some staff that I'd helped develop through tasks like Dave Hembra and others, you know, be at the Olympic Games with people that they were they were with. So not there myself, but got to really appreciate it sort of vicariously through through other people and connections that I knew who were there. Yeah, no, because it just, it, I mean, I knew you'd, you'd linked up with Stu well before 2012 um, in terms of your Masters and then with, with the bobsleigh gig in 2010. So I was, I was just wondering, I was like, you would have been the ideal candidate. I mean, you know, you're English, 2012, you're, you're already in with Stu, you knew who Dan was. Um, I'm, I'm sure you probably had some sort of relationship with Kev Tyler and you probably knew who Derek was as well. So it just came to my mind as like, you know, Nick sounds like he would have been like ideal to be among that, that team for 2012. Well, I, had, I mean, I'd gone self-employed as well, Robbie. I mean, you, you, you get to a point where 25 grand isn't enough anymore, <laughs> you know, with family and people like that. And you're looking at various jobs and academy roles. And, you know, I, I got, you know, down to the last two or three for some quite significant EIS jobs, you know, but they always gave them to people who are already part of the EIS. And, and you know, you understand why they do that for you know, as well. Um, but a lot of those roles would have meant moving away again, like moving to Loughborough or moving somewhere else, moving down to the Southwest or being away from the family a lot. And, you know, I have to be honest, the job in Canada, I loved it. It got very, very difficult and stressful. My family weren't with me at that time. And there was a plan to bring the family over. Um, you know, unfortunately, my, my wife's uh, dad, Ian, took ill with lung cancer. And um, that, that was probably used a little bit to kind of get me out and um, you know I had to come back to England because obviously they weren't going to be emigrating to Canada you know um, and you know, I, it was amazing the sense of just missing out on kids you know when I actually left to go to Canada both of my kids were just going to the next level of school you know Jack was going to high school Ethan was starting school and even to this day I look at that and I go man you know I was not there for that first year of Jack going to high school you know Although his granddad was there, but, you know, at that time. And so coming back and, and, and I felt myself having to go for jobs because, you know, I needed a certain level of income. I needed that sort of work. And in the end, I went, you know what? Don't stop chasing the titles, you know, start working with good people. And I had a long relationship with Mark Aston at Sheffield Eagles, you know, a championship rugby league club. And I've done work with him on and off for a, period of time and they were looking at sort of going full time and you know and I just enjoyed that environment I enjoyed working with Mark I knew I could pull in some other contracts uh, as well so I decided to go self-employed and set my own stuff up so I could stay based in Sheffield and not 
necessarily have to be away, even with a task job. You know, I love traveling around the country with that job. I was probably away two or three days a week. Um, at that time, actually, I was living in Newcastle. This gets complicated. Sorry, Robbie, I've been all over the place. <laughs> I was back, we were back in Newcastle because that's where my wife's uh, dad lived and we went back up there. Um, but then sort of 2011-ish, um, you know, we had, a, we had a property in Sheffield. I, I went back to there. Dave Hembrick came and stayed with me from Hallam. And, um, you know, I, we started making Sheffield the base, knowing that my eldest son was getting ready to go in the army. And uh, so once he had graduated and he'd gone to Harrogate to go to college there, then Susan and uh, Ethan came down and uh, moved back to Sheffield with me. And then we kind of created a base there for the next, you know, 10, 11 years or so. A second time we obviously lived in Sheffield and it was a great community. And, and all those things started to become really important to me. You know, the local pub, the Byron, the people I met there, you know, um, just different things started to become important to life rather than, you know, um, kind of work with a big name team. Um, and, and also, again, just the need to control my own income. You know, I, I was someone who was, I was always brought in by the coach. So if the coach went, I was gone as well, rather than necessarily being brought in. One thing Paul Winsborough always said, make sure you're brought in by the medical team because they have long-term contracts. <laughs> if you're brought in by the coaching team, you're not there for very long. And, and, and I think he's, he's been right with that, you know, a, a, a lot along the way as well. So, yeah, I think my... My interest, my, my motivations changed. Um, I was really happy, you know, working, working where I was working and realizing that, you know, I had the, I had the, the power to help people change through coaching um, at whatever level um, they were. And, you know, so that's really where I found myself in Sheffield for all that time. I worked with Keith Curl at Notts County. That was, I was abysmal at Notts County. That was a uh, time when I was doing Notts County, Derbyshire Institute of Sport, Sheffield Eagles and England Golf. Um, and for seven months, I don't know how I got through it, to be honest. I mean, um, it, uh, it, too much, way too much. I mean, the idea was I was going to bring other people in, you know. I try to take on other staff. And, and sometimes your own personality, people just want you, you know. Not that I've got a personality, but... Uh, you know, and as I kept trying to bring different people in to sort of be the day-to-day -day person, um, I just kept, kept getting knocked back. Uh, and they were good people that I was trying to get involved. Um, so, but, I mean, you know, maybe it was, it was for good grace that, you know, Keith got fired at Knox County, so I lost that job. And I had to sort myself out. I was, um, yeah, I was not in a good place then, professionally or mentally, I don't think at the time. Uh, and I had to figure, figure quite a few things out as uh, definitely my quality of work really, really suffered through that period for sure. So you have such an extensive background in terms of just, you know, packing up, taking on a new opportunity, just ex you've explored so many different avenues, you know, England, Canada, America, just, what has what have you learned from all those experiences i guess is what i'm trying to trying to ask like what are the big sort of key life lessons you've taken away up until this point you know i think some of it obviously you can look back with maturity um and if i was talking to myself back when i was you know 24 25 um is um I guess have more than one target at the time it was you're very career focused you're very about it's all about me how good can i be 
you know? And so you're, you're, you're following that. And even from the age of about 15, I, I think it was because I studied history and I looked at Stalin's five-year plans, nothing to do with Stalin, <laughs> but uh, five-year planning. And I kind of lost my way with that, really. I had this kind of like, okay, five years, I'm going to have this done. Five years, I'll have that done. So I think it's important to have that kind of macro plan and realize that it's not just about you and career. It is about social and friends. It is about family. Yes, it's financial. You know, it is about uh, having joy and exploring. And I, I would honestly say that I'm probably 50, I'm 50, not probably 50 now, I am 50 now. And it's only really been in a way through this COVID time that I've really learned to, 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 to say, you know, what brings me joy? And um, I think it's setting those values very early on that, you know, what really is, is important, you know, for, for me to be exploring and expressing. So um, also, again, I think some of the things that I've learned, not just to have sort of that more macro view of, of, of what you want to get out of stuff is that um, not everything's under your control. You know, I mean, a lot of the jobs or positions that were lost, you know, in my career weren't, weren't always my decision. You know, managers get fired. I got fired. Um, look at the knock-on effects that have on, that has on family. If I get, uh, you know, if, if funding gets cut, you know, who gets cut? Um, you know, you do a really successful job. I mean, I could have stayed at Derbyshire Institute of Sport for the rest of my life. I love that role. What have we built up there, that little area of Derbyshire with Andy and Chloe and the team there. But somewhere along the line, I mean, I was ready to give up everything and just be there but I was going to cost them too much. You know, I can't do it for 25,000. So they brought in, they got rid of me, brought in a, you know, but if they're elite people, I, you know, Jessica Turner and people like that, that are doing what they kept me on for a period, but they wanted someone for 25 grand, you know, and I think there was politics and stuff like that as well. So part of, part of what I've learned as well is whenever you take on a new role, um, understand the geography and landscape you're going into, do some due diligence to, Say, so who's bringing me in? Who holds the power? It's a little bit Machiavellian here. I, I do like reading, reading my philosophy, but understand who's bringing you in. What position does that put you in? You know, how, how does that give you a position of strength or power or weakness with the group you're going to be working with? Um, you know, so recognizing the landscape is really, really important. You know, is it, is it a program that's funded for four years? Where's the money coming from? And that, that's a really important perspective to take as well. So understanding your own kind of values and have more of a macro view, but then also understand the landscape, the personalities of the environment you're going in. And I'll give you a practical example of that. Chris Turner would say to me that um, as a manager, you very rarely get a job because a team's doing well. You get a job because a team's doing badly. So in, in assessing a team that you're going into, that's not doing well, look at the, the lengths of contracts that players are left on. If you're going into an environment where all those players have got two and a half year contracts still and they're a losing team, you probably don't want to touch that with a barge pole because your number one job is to ship people out, to bring people in. You know, but if you're going in, you've got 50, 60% of the squad are in the last year of their contract, you've got a chance. You know? And that's kind of a, maybe a micro view of looking at the landscape and what you're going into. But for the best will in the world, it doesn't how great you are, you know, going into an environment where those players have got two-year contracts versus six months left, you've got a lot more opportunity to change things, you know, by shifting players in and out. So just to recap again, values, your personal values, macro view, 
and any roles you're taking on, don't just get blinded by the name or the title of what you're doing, um, the kudos of it. Actually have a real good solid look at the landscape and sometimes be prepared to say no. It's not for me. Ah, uh, Stalin. I've studied old Joe. Not job. I wonder what Joe Stalin's A-scape would have looked like. <laughs> you just see two Russian lads going, do you want it? Do you want to correct them? No. Do you want it? No. No. Oh. You, perfect. Perfect. <laughs> yeah. Terrible. I thought uh, I thought three was your magic number. It is my magic number, yeah. Three year plans. Come <laughs> <laughs> here, Nick. Uh, on your t-shirt there. I think it turns into three year plans because that's about as long as things seem to last. <laughs> On your T-shirt there, you're wearing an Altus T-shirt, and it says "Inspire, Connect, Educate, and Perform." So, given what's gone on in the world in the last year, damn you, China! What happened to you, China? It used to be cool, um, but given what's gone on over the last year, what is Altus mission now? Stepping forward, is it has it changed? Has it evolved? Given the current climate of the world. Um, like, because I know since I interned four years ago, the setup has, has slightly changed. Um, but I suppose just give us the sort of vision going forward for Altus now and, and maybe what your role is on that. Yeah, I, I don't think the central philosophy has changed, just how we, we're going about doing it. And, you know, we were always going to build towards, uh, you know, the, the sport education side. And, and it's integral, right? I mean, you know, from being there on the ACPs live that, it's, it's as much about the athlete education as about coach education. And those two things happen best when everyone's together. Not a coach goes to a clinic over here on his own, you know, and then on Monday decides to do a whole bunch of different crap, right? It's how do you really create education opportunities uh, where we can really transform things? So, you know, that, that was, a, was a, luckily we were already obviously in the digital education market. So, you know, when you look at what we have now, I mean, our, our goal is to, you know, in, in, inspire change through, through coaching. And, um, you know, to, to be able to do that, we believe we need to uh, provide great education. Uh, and, and education is changing, you know, and, and it's no longer in the formal sense. There's a lot of, a lot of self-education. So how do we connect people to, you know, high quality education? And that's not just through ourselves, doing our own things, but, but our network is your network. Um, you know, and I think the virtual ACPs that we pivoted to this year, now we've just rebranded them, Altus Connect, um, you know, because we have so many friends and colleagues that are willing to come to our environment and, and share. Um, you know, we have an Altus Connect coming up on February the 18th and 20th, you know, um, that's a sport performance focus one. And it's just amazing whenever you ask someone, hey, look, would you mind? Oh, I'd love to, you know, because I think we offer a very uh, safe, free environment for people to really express and come in and learn, you know. Um, so a big part of my job, and I was, I was very, um, I'll come back to what I was collecting in a second, I was very uh, involved in the Need for Speed course uh, in terms of kind of aligning the course a little bit more with, with, you know, creating learning activities in that course. You know, we get great feedback on the foundation course, but we know we want to improve it. You know, uh, the performance therapy course is going for a rewrite right now with Stu. And again, we're going to change the structure of that. Um, so that's going to be redone for this year. But the great thing about those courses is that once you bought them once, 
they're yours for life. There's no pay for an upgrade, pay for version 2.0. Now, they're always, they're always live documents for us as well as we, you know, just the recent Need for Speed update, you know, we were able to get Johan Lati talking about posture and hips and the influence of that in running. You know, a great three-way um, with Daniel Kadlech, you know, Chris Bishop and Matt Jordan talking about, you know, asymmetries and dominance as well. So these things are always evolving. So the courses, if you like, are our kind of point where we filtered a lot of information out. So you're going to engage and exchange with a lot of information. Um, and there's levels of which you might want to engage that in. You know, you can go through the course at a pace and leave a lot of the deeper dives and other resources till later and come back to the course when you might want to dive into it as a resource. You might want to take three months doing a course and do every single thing that's in there, you know, uh, as well. So the courses really give a great opportunity to, to connect with, you know, our philosophies, our way of thinking, our friends and guests and colleagues that we bring in to engage with those courses. And also with our network, you know, our Facebook Agora group, we, we post questions a lot through the courses. And it's like, hey, go and talk to our community, see, see what they think, you know, bring your problem to the community. So we, we really want to encourage people to kind of learn out loud, you know, show your work, that, that kind of uh, philosophy as well. And I think we're moving more, more towards that. And then, you know, really uh, another level of, of what we're trying to do to, uh, to, to connect people to the education is that, our Altis 360 is um, kind of like Netflix. You know, you, you know that information on the Altis 360, it's a library of, you know, past presentations and we update that with some current stuff as well, um, is your go-to, or what do, I, what do I fancy looking at today? You know, or you might have a particular problem you want to look at. Let's go and see what's on 360. So you're not engaging with us directly there, but you know, indirectly, we've had a lot of influence in terms of what's, what's on that library for you to go and choose from, to look at, you know? And then the, uh, the Altis Connects, again, take another step up. Um, you know, you're paying to go to a mini conference. You know, one thing with conferences is that often I find they're the worst return on investment you ever, you ever invest in, right? You know, your, your travel, your accommodation, you go there and you get all this stuff thrown at you and you, maybe you walk away with one thing uh, from a conference. The best thing, as you know, about conferences is the networking and uh, the, the occasional drink here or there too. But the Altis uh, Connect, um, you know, is really where people do get a chance to engage live with each other. You know, um, how many conferences can you go on live where, you know, people are throwing in questions and you yourself get to speak the damn path directly as part of that, you know, and have that conversation with him. You know, uh, the guest presenters that we that we bring in talking about real world situations, you know, Rachel Balkovich saying, you know what, the, part, the biggest part of your job as coaching is not doing what everyone likes. It's how do you get them to do stuff that they don't like, and yet that they need? And really exploring that as an issue, you know, um, getting Cam Joss really diving down to what they actually really do, you know, in the field with their athletes, you know, not some glorified research project um, that they then spend five minutes on the how to change things part, you know? So we get those kind of in-depth, the round table discussions, you know, again, with different experts um, uh, uh, talking about, you know, their perspectives on, on speed development in, in sport, for example, too. And, you know, with them all being recorded, obviously then, you know, you get to look at them at your own pace afterwards or be actively engaged on the day. 
you know, and so the Altus connects three themes coming up. So we're going to sort of try this this year, sport performance theme, sports science and sports medicine theme, and then a track and field theme. So we're going to kind of roll those out through the year that way. Uh, and Andreas does a great job of, of coordinating and organizing those for us. Then, like I said, you have the courses, so we have our main three, what we, we call the Performance Trinity. The foundation course really is the, you know, I mean, I, I refer back to that every single week right now. There's so much great stuff in, in, in that. And, you know, it, it's, we spoke earlier about methodology versus ideology. This is principles and methodology. And, um, you know, always good when you've got your head stuck down a rabbit hole, sometimes to go back to some first principles to clear your mind on stuff, you know, and see what's in there. And, uh, you know, that's going to get a bit of an upgrade later in the year as well. Um, two, and then with performance therapy and the need for speed course, you know, you might say performance therapy is, yeah, more on that therapy side. But, you know, as a strength conditioning coach, you know, um, if I want to know about therapy, I'm not going to look at the strength and conditioning coach's guide to therapy, am I? I'm going to go to the best resource I can find and try and understand it and figure that out. So, you know, and the performance therapy isn't just about performing therapy. It's about how to create teams and the philosophy of working over managing problems as well. So that's, to me, that's still a, a great course for anybody. And then the need for speed is definitely focused on, um, on, on team sports um, uh, and, and the breaking down of, of, of speed as a, as a, and its subcomponents uh, within sport, a lot of problem solving and, learning models and understand that balance between, you know, developing skill versus developing capacities. You know, can this making someone move better make them faster or do I have to get them stronger to make them faster? It's a great problem to think about, right? And then the highest level we'll have is our mentorships. Um, you know, that's really exciting development for this year. Uh, the sports performance mentorship coming on in April and uh, a, a, our women's in coaching initiative with our um, uh, women's coaching mentorship uh, starting very, very soon coming up. And again, not to be a, you know, not to push it too much, but the way we've constructed these is that we, we constructed these so people actually change through this nine month period. They don't just come in and get a lot of information dumped on them. You know, this is nudging along, finding problems, case studies, working with Dan directly, you know, Ellie involved in this as well as myself and other guests that we'll bring in. You know, we th felt like three months, great, but can we really see someone change in three months? Does their problem they brought to us really change in three months? You know, um, so again, the mentorships then really become kind of the top of our, of our, of our pillar, of our education um, pyramid, if you like. Um, so um, hopefully that was clear enough and I didn't ramble too much there. No, absolutely perfect absolutely perfect and i'll make sure that i'll link up everything in the show notes for the listeners in, in terms of all the education that altus offer which is like in terms of education altus is just a phenomenal phenomenal resource nick i know something we talked about before we hopped online and i've heard you touch on this in another podcast is this concept of kind of developing your filter again as someone with such an extensive background in you know sports performance I'm sure you have some sort of heuristics, rules of thumb, um, strategies to be able to filter through all the information that's available nowadays, particularly, you know, to a young coach who's just getting into the field and, you know, still is kind of like laying down foundations and, you know, can become very confused with all the information out there. So how could 
coaches go about developing and refining their, their filter system? Well, that's a great question. And, um, you know, we've, we've seen it in the last 12 months, haven't we? The, uh, the abundance of free PDF, free courses, you know, all this stuff that's been made available. And, you know, we've become huge consumers, even more so in the last 12 months of information. And, um, you know, I've been asking quite a few friends, really, kind of to help me shape the mentorship program. You know, how, how much of what they set out to do in the last 12 months have they actually done? And actually, it's become part of what they actually do. Very few of them would admit that anything they've read or done this year has transformed them. You know, that they've you know, changed ways that they, they became busy just doing stuff uh, as well. So I spoke to them a little bit around, around filters and stuff too. And I think, I think there's, there's two areas that I, I look at. Um, going back to the joy thing, what are you going to feel really happy doing? Because it's just fun to go and read that stuff, right? And, and, and in preceding years to this, I've taken John Berardi Precision Nutrition Courses. Absolutely love doing those, getting up early in the morning, spending 45 minutes. It was like an eight-month master's degree, especially the level two, you know. Um, but I also enjoyed learning about learning again. And that was so much more about being a coach that also helped me steal a lot of things they were doing to help me be a better mentor uh, in what I was doing as well, as well as being a better coach. So I, I found joy in doing that. And it's not that I was trying to be a nutritionist to set up a business to be a nutritionist, right? It's kind of like, well, that's kind of pointless doing that. But no, I really enjoyed doing that. But on the other side of it, it's like, okay, I've got this job in front of me right now. You know, I've got my own kind of operating system. But what operating system is happening over there? How do these two things kind of merge? You know, I've got, you know, the way I, I know I need to work to be effective, how is that going to blend with that operating system? So what I, the next thing I'd say is then you've got to determine what needs to get done. And what needs to get done isn't what you think needs to get done. You have to ask the question to the athlete or the coach, what matters to you? So they give you three or four things and you look at those and you can do your little profile of like, yeah, well, I'm really comfortable with that. I'm great with this. Don't know so much about that. Who can I connect with or link to to help me with that? So I think the filter isn't something that you necessarily construct yourself because you don't really know what you need to filter in and filter out. Almost engage with other people. So I, I love Stephen Covey, right? Seek to understand before being understood. I think is a, is, a, is a mantra that every coach should have. And so ask the coach what, what matters to you. That then starts lining up you know, in this period of time, your filter. Now, go back to education for us, guys, right? We had, we had our university lecturers doing that for us because in this month, you had an assignment on X. And so that's everything you were focused on. The following month, you had an assignment on this. Our education system makes us parcel everything up in very tight containers. But when you get out in the real world to actually work, everything's non-linear. Everything's floating around each other a lot. So you do need that kind of direction. Get that direction from the people that you're trying to help rather than you come in with what you think you know and impose that on them. Ask them what's important to them. You know, what's going to change if you achieve that? What does change look like to you? 
I remember working with a Durham cricket player one time and he says, uh, sat down with me in my brief. And uh, that was abnormal, by the way, to sit down with players one-on-one as an SNC coach and have a brief with them, right? So I do that and I said, um, so what, 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 what's important to you in, in an SNC? Oh, I want to get strong. Stefan Jones will love this. Why do you want to get strong for? Um, well, I want to get a bit bigger. How's that going to help your fast bowling? He said, you know what? No one's ever asked me that before. I don't know. I said, well, when you figure that out, why you think that's going to help you, then, then I'm here to help you. Come back and tell me when we meet tomorrow. You know, and I sent them away. You know, um, I, they, they, they need to be invested in why they're doing it for themselves rather than just we're imposing this strength conditioning program on because it's what's done these days, you know, uh, as well. So uh, I think there's two clear things that I've kind of said there. One thing that's going to bring you joy and I think it's important just to learn for learning's sake. I'm every morning right now, I'm getting, getting up. I can't find the book right now. It's out, out by my lamp over there. I'm reading this book on the metaphysics of quality. That actually isn't the title of the book. The title of the book is Lila. That's written by Pertzig. And I love reading that book every morning. This for me. It doesn't change my life. Uh, but the other stuff is then very much directed by the problems I'm facing in my job right now, but being led and guided by the people that I'm trying to help them solve their problems. Zen and the art of motorcycle maintenance. Have you got that one? I've actually given that to my son, Ethan, who's just got off to college here at Cal Poly to read because he loves cars and mechanics and stuff, right? So I thought, can I get him into philosophy by giving him this book? And he actually has said he started to read it. So uh, I'm going to actually do it the wrong way around. I'm going to do that second. And he's an interesting character, Robert Pearcy. Yeah. Um, Nick, just wrapping up here, a few, I say they're quick fire around questions, but like your answers again can be as long as you want. Now for you, maybe not quite as long, but <laughs> uh, we, we, we kind of went through our, our sort of uh, life lessons, but um, a question I do love to ask guests in the show is about their learning process. So how do you learn? So to kind of just refine that question a little more, there's a topic that you've become fascinated with and you want to master it. How do you go about that? So kind of leaning on Pertig a little bit here, right? Static values of quality and dynamic values of quality. And the static way of doing it is go and pick up a book and, and go and research it that way. Um, now that might inform me, but it doesn't necessarily help me learn. Um, so I think, I've, you know, you change throughout your career. I think the best way is go and find out who knows a lot about it and go and try and ask them some questions. Um, and reading Range, actually, the Epstein book Range, really helped me with that because I realized I butterfly around a lot, as you can tell. Um, and that's okay. But then you find the one place you want to stay for a while. So in my learning, I, I spend a lot of time seeking. And uh, Stuart actually helped me out with this quite recently as well. Um, I think it's Jari, um, you know, this sort of principles of knowledge approach that every week I'm seeking stuff, making sense of a certain thing. How is that going to help me share that to my community and make a difference? So now I have this filter where while I'm looking at lots of different stuff, okay, this is what I'm going to pin down on. And I've got a lot better and actually working with Stuart here of the Need for Speed course, way, way better just to try and do more deep learning. Um, you know, I think throughout my career, you know, you've been able to get away with just knowing enough, you know, or pretend that you know stuff to kind of make a difference at a level. 
Um, you know, I'm not a I'm not a specialist. I'd say in anything. So the ability just to say, okay, I'm seeking all this stuff. This right now seems quite good to make sense of. So let's go into that a little bit more. Let's spend this week or this month doing that. And chatting with Dan the other day really helped me again, where he reminded me of actually of a system that I, that I you know, I, I have had quite successfully is, you know, almost line up your days of the week for a particular theme you're going to look into, you know, and sometimes you crack it in one session. Sometimes that Monday where I'm looking at muscle physiology, let's say, goes on for three months. So just organizing either your days or your weeks into little boxes for that opportunity to learn uh, and create some dedicated structure to that for me is, is really important in terms of helping me learn. Otherwise, I'll just keep buzzing around every single topic uh, and, and never really get into anything particular. What is your top book recommendation? And you kind of touched on what you're currently reading, but if there's anything else you're currently reading, let us know. So what would be your top book recommendation so what would be the number one book you'd give away and your current reading list you can and you can name more than one book if you want um so i think industry wise uh john barada's change makers is uh is, is been outstanding um i think david epstein's book range maybe it's confirmation bias for me because i'm you know i'm just averagely good at a lot of things um they're two great industry books that i would definitely look at uh, on a personal level, um, um, oh, it's the Child of the Flower Moon or something like that. I really wish I could remember the actual title. Fascinating book looking at the beginnings of the FBI in American history and around the Indian reservations and how they were made to sell their land around oil and things like that. That is a really fascinating book to read. Uh, that really had me hooked. Um, I like a bit of uh, James Patterson as well. Um, you know, they, they keep me, keep me going. And, um, the one book I just lent to a friend recently is a book called Sophie's World. Um, uh, Sophie's World is a, a story based around how a young girl learns about philosophy. And, uh, that, that would always remain in my top 10 of books is Sophie's World. No, uh, Lee Child, Stu's Guilty Pleasure. Lee Child, yeah, actually Lee Child as well. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, correct. <laughs> That's good. I, I know you've, we, we've kind of touched on this already, but maybe something else may come to mind after I ask this, but what have been the top lessons you've learned so far in your life? I know we, we kind of touched on this a little bit earlier on. We spoke about all the, the different situations and environments that you've worked in and, and lived in, but is there anything else that comes to mind when I ask that question in that manner? Yeah, I think, um, and I've ebbed and flowed with this one, but don't take yourself so seriously. Um, I've struggled with that at times, but um, <laughs> I honestly think it took me to meet Colin West to kind of start having a personality uh, and, uh, you know, have a bit of crack and stuff as well. I took my job and my role so, so seriously. I mean, I could be out having beers with Bruce and uh, Skip on our undergraduate degree, and we'd be talking freaking mitochondria after 12 beers, you know? Um, so don't take yourself so seriously. I mean, um, life's here to have, have fun and enjoy it. And um, the other one as well is that the, the conversation that you don't have with someone is the hardest conversation you'll ever have. Um, and that really goes again to building those relationships with people. And 
you know, I learned stuff around crucial conversations and, and motivational interviewing over the last few years as well. And that's really helped me to face up to conflict sometimes. Don't run away from conflict. Um, you know, I think often conflict, uh, you, when you really address it, you find that both people are often shaking the same end of the stick. Or sometimes you agree to disagree. So have that conversation. Don't, you know, don't, don't, don't let it, let it lie. Um, and then, um, you know, embrace, embrace the wider things in life. I mean, man, I've been dropped in paradise here in South Lake Tahoe. So, I, you know, my friends back in England, I know they hate me, love me when I'm sending my running photographs back and all that stuff as well. And we were lucky in Sheffield too, to be honest, with my wife with a horse riding and the kids with the rugby and being engaged with that group. And sometimes just, just look at joy in the simpler things. Um, I think has been a, is something which, um, you know, I think is more relevant to my life now as well. Okay. So I'm taking you out for dinner and I say to you, Nick, you can take five people to this dinner and they can be dead or alive. Who would you bring to this dinner and why would you bring them? And they can also be a real person or a fictitious character. Um, I would bring um, Alexander the Great. I would bring um, Nelson Mandela. I would bring uh, Mary Seacott, Dan Paff, and hmm, let's go contemporary, Donald Trump. And what, why those five people? Um, eclectic mix. Um, again, just strikes me straight away that, you know, females don't just come to mind, right? It's always men that come to mind in these, this, these positions. But uh, I think um, they're historical characters. That I think there would be uh, perspectives on things that they achieved or, or their failures through historical perspective, but then also recognizing there's a lot of common principles, philosophies that, that kind of bind them together or might actually be diametrically opposed. And, and the ability to actually have some decent discourse. Imagine about to sit down with Donald Trump and say, what the fuck, dude? You know, you could have done so much good. What got in your way? You know, um, you, know you, were, you were the anti-politician. Uh, what, what went on? And maybe he's, he was always like that, right? But then to have someone like Mary Seacott talk to him about those sort of things and stuff like that as well would be kind of pretty amazing, you know? I don't know if Dan would be too thrilled to go to dinner with Donald Trump. Oh, that'd be a great conversation. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, imagine that. <laughs> I'd say Dan is, also loves being called a character. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's great stuff. Nick, listen, this has been phenomenal. Uh, I really do appreciate your time. Um, obviously, some of the listeners will want to know more about you and uh, where can they contact you if someone wants to reach out and connect? So uh, my email is n.ward at altis.world. Um, check me out at, uh, at nwarduk and at nickwarduk on Instagram and Twitter. And uh, yeah, I'm on, I get my number. I'm on WhatsApp. like to chat, as you can tell. So, uh, yeah, please, anyone, feel free to reach out and share and just connect up. Appreciate the opportunity, Robbie. Uh, absolutely. Listen, I'm more than happy to have you back on again. I mean, as uh, as some of the listeners probably are already aware of, and as you know, I had a phenomenal experience at Altus um, and everyone there. I, I owe the guys so much. It was a great life experience. So anything I can do for you guys, 
I'm always willing to help in any way I can. Yeah, glad, glad, glad to hear. And we'd love to get back to having live sessions again, right? Back on site. Uh-huh, absolutely. Have the people mingling. That's... Well, I've been, I've been talking to James and Stuart Mopex, and I'm like, I just want to go back to Arizona. I'm fucking sick of this grey weather here. So I remember the, when I first went to Arizona, I was like, I'm on planet Mars. It's just red everywhere. Like, but it's be- it's beautiful in its own sort of way. And like the hike in there is just phenomenal too. So yeah, anyway. That, shame I can't show your, you know, your, your listeners the, the backdrop I've got right here right now, but you, you can have a little look, you know? Oh yeah. It's, <laughs> looks beautiful, but okay. So for all the listeners, uh, Nick, I'll say goodbye to the offline and for all the listeners until next time, take care, be well and stay strong. Mm-hmm.